This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 167 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. As many organizations accelerate their move to the cloud, thanks in no small part to the global pandemic and the shift to working from home, the adoption of SASE protocols is proving attractive. SASE stands for Secure Access Service Edge, but as with most of these technologies, there's more to it than that. Joining us this week to help our understanding of SASE is John Peterson, Chief Product Officer at Ericom. We discuss the motivations for the industry's move towards SASE, the potential pros and cons, as well as what kinds of businesses it's best suited for. In addition, John Peterson shares his views on leadership, as well as what he looks for when hiring members of his team. Stay with us. started my career actually in the United States Marine Corps, so... I started off as an aviation electronics engineer, and uh, after my kind of tour of duty in the Marine Corps, I got out and got into high tech, started a job at a company called U.S. Robotics back in the early 90s. And at U.S. Robotics, I uh, had a a number of different roles, started off in engineering as an applications engineer and then uh, turned uh, sales engineer. I did that for a number of years, and then the company was acquired by 3Com, and I kind of continued on with uh, 3Com after the acquisition. Uh, after that, I ended up moving out to Silicon Valley to work for uh, Cisco Systems and uh, ran a sales engineering team at Cisco Systems. <clears throat> and that portion of my career, I was really on the kind of networking side of the house, uh, you know, working on routers and switches and access uh, systems like that. And then I left uh, Cisco and turned uh, cybersecurity guy and went to a startup company called NetScreen. Uh, NetScreen was a firewall company and... Uh, the company uh, went IPO at about 2001, and um, the company skyrocketed. And I was the, in charge of the uh, global sales engineering organization. I grew my team from about two people to about 120 people in uh, uh, four years' time. And then uh, Juniper acquired the company for $4.2 billion, and I left after that and went on to Fortinet, where I was the uh, vice president of product management at Fortinet, um, another well-known uh, cybersecurity company out here in, in the Valley. And I uh, did that for a number of years and uh, kind of been on the cybersecurity track ever since then. Um, other roles I've had kind of since then were uh, Barracuda Networks. I was a vice president and general manager there. Uh, Komodo uh, helped start a company called Stellar Cyber, uh, so on and so forth. And here I am at uh, at Ericom as the chief product officer. And so uh, give us some insights. What is your day-to-day like these days? What sort of things fill your time? Um, spending most of my time really focused on uh, product strategy, so kind of analyzing the market, uh, identifying the trends and, and identifying problems, and taking those uh, problems that I find and really trying to figure out solutions for those problems and then map it to our product roadmap. Um, so that's kind of my, my day-to-day, along with uh, doing a little bit of software developing. Um, I still keep my hands on the keyboard and uh, prototype things and, and build new technology and bring it to market. How would you describe your management style? Um, I lead by example. I think that comes from my uh, my days in the in the Marine Corps. Um, so as far as how I manage, it's really um, showing people that are underneath me uh, 
how I do things and uh, kind of learning and working together collectively. I'm a very collaborative type of person. Um, but yeah, I think lead by example is probably the best way that sums up how I operate. We want to touch on um, this uh, this notion of sassy um, and how that applies to uh, things like zero trust. Let, let, can we start with just some basics here? For folks who might not be familiar with it, can you describe to us what is SASE? Yeah, so SASE, it stands for um, Secure Access Service Edge, and it's, uh, it's an emerging concept, I think, that Gartner um, kind of put out into the market about a year or so ago. And it's really about moving the... Uh, the network security stack to the cloud. And when you think about what a network security stack is, it's a combination of things that include uh, firewalls and secure web gateways and VPN type of technology, software-defined perimeter, um, remote browser isolation. The, num- the things that you used to have in your organization on-premise, all of those things, that entire security stack is now kind of migrating to the cloud. And when that occurs users of this new security stack that's residing in the cloud have uh, a better scalability, uh, better security, better control. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, larger corporations that are uh, starting to kind of put these security stacks together and, and offer SASE type services. Um, if, I, if I were to go back in time, I remember when there was a, an appliance for every one of those things that I just described, you know, a firewall mm-hmm. appliance, a secure web gateway appliance, a VPN appliance. And then uh, during my Fortinet days, I saw that consolidation occur into what was called a UTM, a Unified Threat Management, where all those different technologies, instead of being separate appliances, they kind of consolidated into a single appliance, an all-in-one appliance. But what's now happening is that same concept of consolidation is occurring, but it's not an appliance anymore. It's all moving to a cloud and consolidated into a single cloud are there any limitations there or are there any shortcomings to to moving to sassy yeah i mean some will argue that um you know they 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 really want best of breed and they they will argue that you can't really get best of breed when you select you know one single cloud provider to offer all of those services so some organizations will see that as a weakness and say well i want this part of the security stack provided by, you know, vendor uh, X and a different part of the security stack offered by vendor Y so that they can build a kind of best of breed approach. Uh, that I think is probably one of the, the biggest limitations to doing it. And what are some of the major benefits then? Well, the benefits are that you don't have to uh, go out and, and purchase all of these different appliances and then try to deploy them everywhere you have offices. It's all centrally located in the cloud. So it, it reduces your... Uh, and your deployment footprint significantly. And the administration of all of those things starts to get a lot easier because the cloud provider is doing a lot of that, uh, a lot of that work for you, updates and things like that. So um, I think huge benefits um, come from that. And I think one of the things that uh, was very telling is when COVID-19 hit, a lot of organizations scrambled to figure out how to get their employees working remote better. And if they were using the appliance approach, uh, their appliances weren't necessarily big enough to handle the the load that they were now being tasked to put on them. You know, before they might have had a hundred users connecting to the VPN, and now it's a thousand users connecting to the VPN to get remote access to the network. So, if they had deployed a SASE solution, it's just a really a matter of uh, dialing up more capacity from the uh, SASE cloud provider, and then dialing it down uh, once they don't need it anymore. Hmm. 
Are, are there particular sizes of organizations that this is best suited for? Yeah, I think, you know, the it really, I think SASE really works for organizations of any size. I can envision having a, uh, you know, a small organization like a law firm that may have, uh, you know, 10 or 20 people in the organization, but there's a uh, high degree of need for, for security because of the data that they're keeping. So hmm. on the small side, it's definitely uh, definitely useful there, um, primarily because small organizations don't have the IT and security staff to manage all of this stuff. So if you could you know, deliver that by way of a uh, cloud solution, it makes their life a lot easier. But then on the other extreme, the largest of large organizations can benefit from it too, uh, because those organizations are constantly scaling up and down and growing and it's really hard to you know, maintain uh, appliances and buying new ones and upgrading them and redeploying them and all of that stuff. So I think it really is a beneficial uh, concept for all organizations. Now, in terms of it being able to coexist with zero trust, what's the, what's the status of things there? Yeah, I think uh, SASE has to come with zero trust. You know, zero trust is another kind of new trend that's, that's happening right now. And a lot of the technologies that are in the security stack uh, for SASE need to be zero trust. Zero trust has been a concept that's been around for a number of years, um, and it's starting to to regain popularity. And uh, the challenge, I think, of zero trust from, say, 10 years ago was the difficulty in deploying zero trust. So with SASE now on the horizon, I think SASE makes it easier to deploy zero trust. And what zero trust is all about is making sure that users don't have access to things that they don't need access to. It's all about isolation, isolating the users from the applications that they are allowed or not allowed access to. So if I think about some of those technologies in the security stack for SASE, like remote browser isolation, um, remote browser isolation is a, is a technology that's all about zero trust. It says, isolate the web from the end device. Uh, let the local browser talk to a remote browser in the cloud and let that remote browser in the cloud do the browsing on behalf of the user. So you're isolating uh, web content, which could be malicious, and you're doing it uh, via the cloud. Um, another zero-trust technology that's in the uh, SASE stack is something called SDP, Software Defined Perimeter. It's a mm-hmm. zero-trust way of getting remote access to applications. Uh, it's kind of the, the next generation of VPN, if you will, but done in a zero-trust way. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk to you about um, your take on threat intelligence and, and where you think it fits into an organization's defenses. Yeah, threat intelligence is, is also very important. Um, you know, the threat landscape is constantly changing. Therefore, you have to have a constant way of uh, building a threat intelligence database. Um, and what a threat intelligence database looks like is a, a database that collects and keeps track of malicious uh, URLs, you know, malicious websites or malicious files. You know, maybe there's some sort of new ransomware or virus that's out there. So there needs to be a a database or a collection of those things, uh, malicious URLs, malicious files, malicious IP addresses, you know, known bad actors on the internet. And that is constantly changing. So uh, there's solutions out there in the market that you can actually buy threat intelligence feeds and then push those feeds into uh, into products like uh, endpoint security devices so that they're keeping track of uh, viruses and malware or uh, secure web gateways that are keeping track of uh, known 
known bad sites as well as known good sites. But uh, very important, all organizations um, uh, need to have some sort of threat intelligence feed that's constantly being updated uh, as a part of their security stack, whether they're getting it from a, a SASE architecture or getting it from on, uh, on-premise appliance devices. Do you have recommendations or tips for organizations that are, that are looking to get started with threat intelligence um, you know, to, to, to dial it in? You know, what's the best way to get going? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, community threat intelligence feeds that are out there that are free. So at a minimum, organizations should, should try to leverage those things. Um, and it's very easy to do uh, is to go grab those feeds. But then there's also commercial offerings that, that come by way of the products that organizations are buying. Like I said, you might have a uh, web filtering or secure web gateway device uh, in your organization. And those products are only as good as the threat intelligence data that's coming into them. So if you have a secure web gateway, for example, in your organization, but the threat intelligence database hasn't been updated in a year or two, then you're not really that secure because the threat landscape has significantly changed in the course of a year. So really to get started is to, uh, to again, try to, to either purchase something commercial, and if you can't, if an organization can't afford to do that at the time, to go out there and grab some of the community uh, free threat intelligence feeds that are out there. You know, I, I, I'm interested in your experience um, in the Marine Corps. A, a lot of the folks that I speak to say that they, they've, they got a lot out of their military experience, that it's really been uh, a valuable, time well spent uh, when they look back on it, that they learned a lot of lessons that they've taken with them through their lives. Is that the case for you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, in the in the military, it's uh, it's security, but a different type of security is what I did. I wasn't necessarily on the cybersecurity side, but when I, went, when I think about security in general, it's really about, uh, you know, stopping the bad guys and um, understanding uh, the environment. And then once you understand the environment, you can start to build um, kind of policy and procedure and models uh, to kind of combat the threat landscape. So absolutely, uh, a lot of training uh, in the military, a lot of discipline I gained from the military, uh, and just a lot of understanding of, you know, how to secure things, how to set up a perimeter around things that you're trying to protect, be it physical things or be it, uh, you know, data assets. So, um, you know, a lot of a lot of my colleagues are also uh, – kind of prior military people as well. And for some reason, a lot of us gravitated to the cybersecurity industry, probably for that very reason that we're just kind of used to that way of thinking. What do you look for when you're hiring someone? What sort of experiences are important to you and, and what sort of things don't matter so much? Yeah, experience-wise, um, there's two things I look for. I think I look for experience, you know, so do they have the relevant skill set for, for what I'm trying to do? Um, but probably more important, than experience is attitude. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I look for that first. I look for individuals that have passion, that have drive, that have a can-do attitude, um, that are problem solvers. Um, you know, you give someone a task, and if they don't understand how to solve it right there, at least if they, at least if they have the uh, the right attitude and, and uh, um, ability to learn, uh, you know, they can solve many problems. And that's one of the other things I gained from my time in the military is uh, problem solving. So personality traits is also something I look for. You know, can they coexist and operate in a team environment? I look for people that are team-oriented, that are very collaborative versus uh, individuals. But then back on the skill set side, 
you know, looking for, for people that have uh, kind of been in the cybersecurity space for a bit um, that may have certifications. Uh, there's a number of different certifications in the cybersecurity industry. Those things are also very important to me. Um, and then when, kind of, when you sum it all up, it's really about finding uh, the person with the right attitude, the right skill set, passion, and drive. What are your recommendations for folks who are looking to get started in the industry or maybe you know, switching career paths, uh, maybe someone who's a little bit older? Do you have any recommendations for them? Yes. I, you know, I, I would suggest that uh, people go off and uh, kind of prepare to get the certification uh, in cybersecurity. One of them is a CISSP certification. Uh, there's also something called the SANS Institute. Um, there's a lot of places you can go on, uh, online and, and study and learn. You know, it's really hard to find people in the cybersecurity uh, that have the, the skill set to be in the cybersecurity in, uh, industry because a lot of the stuff is not taught in college. A lot of the stuff is taught through organizations like SANS and things like that. So that's the first place I would kind of direct people to start. You, you might be able to get a kind of a basic understanding of technology uh, in college, but the cybersecurity industry industry is changing so rapidly, and there's new types of threats like every day. So the best way to stay on top of that is to kind of align to some of these uh, these organizations that are out there, uh, like SANS. Where do you suppose we're going? I mean, when you look at things like SASE, when you look at uh, things like Zero Trust, you know these things that are sort of the, the, the current trends, where, where do you think we're headed? What does the future look like to you? Well, it's definitely headed to the cloud for sure. Um, you know, we saw applications go to the cloud uh, and, and it kind of just makes sense for, for security to go to the cloud as well. So that trend is happening very, very rapidly. Um, I think we'll continue to see more cloud services than on-premise um, type of products. Uh, I think that the, uh, the endpoint constantly needs to to be protected. So the endpoint uh, security is, is going to continue to evolve. Gone are the days where you just had some antivirus software on your endpoint. Uh, that endpoint software is going to become more intelligent over time and start tracking things that are uh, uh, anomalous. Uh, we'll start to see more utilization of technologies like artificial intelligence and machine learning. Uh, the old way of having kind of static detection and lists of known bad things and known good things is, is going away because the known bad is happening so rapidly that security researchers can't even keep up. So artificial intelligence and machine learning is kind of going to continue to be a trend to help identify things that are anomalous and malicious. You know, kind of when you sum it all up, you know, it's really the cloud and machine learning and AI and better visibility into you know, who's accessing what and when and from where. It'll be an interesting uh, coming years, I guess, on uh, when it comes to cybersecurity. You know, like I said, I guess I would uh, kind of guide the, uh, the the audience here to really start to take a look at, at SASE and understand uh, the components of it. When you when you hear SASE, it's, it's one word, but it really means a number of different things because it's about the different components in the SASE stack that are important. And I would you know, guide people to look for SASE providers that have, you know, best of breed components in that stack. Um, remote browser isolation is a very, very difficult thing to do. Uh, just because it's in the stack and there's a checkbox that says that it's there doesn't necessarily mean that it's the uh, the best technology. So uh, when you when you when you sign up for SASE, you really, really have to 
dig in a little bit deeper, double click on that SASE component and see all the different things in the stack and then start um, doing, you know, proof of concepts on the individual components in the stack, be it secure web gateway, remote browser isolation, software defined perimeter, firewall, et cetera. It's really important to take a look at, at all of the pieces individually. So is there any standardization so that if someone says we're offering a SASE solution, there's you can compare it between vendors, or is there enough variability that uh, folks really need to take a closer look? I think there should be some standardization. There, the, to my knowledge, there hasn't been any yet um, because it's still fairly new. The, you know, there should be some some kind of standard way, I guess, that organizations can uh, measure and, and judge and grade the viability of each component. There should be, but I don't think there's one yet at this point. Our thanks to John Peterson from Ericom for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Caitlin Mattingly, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with executive editor Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.